You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. So speaking of Renee, uh, if you don't know Renee, she's my wife. Um, You may not know, very few people do know, that she's actually a missionary and uh, full-time missionary, and I, by that, I, I don't mean she's, she, I mean she has gone to Africa and done a bit of missionary work over there, but her full-time mission work is in Caroline Springs, and um, you guys think I'm in full-time ministry because I stand up the front and yell at you, she does more than I do, right? Um, as a missionary, not just in sharing the gospel with our kids every day, but in sharing the gospel with those around us. And most of her missionary, missionary work is, is focused on people outside of the church. So you may not have seen this, but she, um, she, this is her gifting, and she really loves to invest in uh, mums who live around us. We've got this, by God's grace, we've got this little park at the front of our house. You might have seen it if you've come around. And it is Renee's trap, right, for... For, for her missionary work. She lays this trap, it's called a park, swings and a slide, and then like bees to honey, right? Mums and kids come along and start playing on that trap and India and Judah know that as soon as they see someone there to sound the alarm and then Renee heads out armed with love and good looks. That's what she's got, love and good looks aplenty and she pursues these uh, these women, and, and so um, some of you might be here actually this morning because of her interacting with you in that way. So at the moment she's, she's um, particularly um, started this relationship with a, a young, I think 22-year-old single mum who's just moved into the area. It was the honey trap that did it, and then they've just pursued a relationship with one another, and I met her for the first time recently. She was around at our house, and I was chatting to her, and um, it was such a switched-on young girl, and, um, and she was really, she's moved to this area from a smaller coastal town, and she was really lamenting the fact that in her experience, she has gone from a close-knit community to a, a facade of a community. Her experience of living here for six months or so now, maybe less, is that while the appearance of Caroline Springs is that it's very community-orientated, the, the, the actual community experience is very um, disconnected. And uh, people tend to live within their own walls and not venture out in terms of wanting to make relationships. And, and so her, she's found it a very lonely experience moving here with a, a two-year-old son and um, not knowing a whole bunch of people. And so um, I was speaking to her about this and um, she was saying, you know, she thinks this might be a little bit because of the way that social media has captured our our imagination so much that there's this not only a disconnect between people feeling like they're interacting without genuinely interacting, but also the fact that through social media we, we erect this facade of what our life is like, right? Like you go through someone's Instagram feed and it just makes you feel depressed because everything is awesome, right? Just kids are well behaved and food looks amazing and the, the, the sun's always shining and, 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 and the selfies are always beautifully set up, right? And it depresses you. In the middle of the night last night, we went upstairs to find India covered head to to toe in vomit for no reason at all. I don't think she's sick. She's just covered. No one's taking that selfie, right? Vomit! 
No one on Instagram photographing vomit and poo, right? Let's be honest. And, and so that, that, that whole, that, that's very powerful um, in, in reinforcing this habit that we have of, 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 of making ourselves a facade, not letting anyone beyond, in beyond that facade. I'm told that there are many, many houses in Caroline Springs, five-bedroom, beautiful, lovely garden with not a single bit of furniture inside. It's that, it's that idea of that if I can just show people that I've got it together, it doesn't matter what's going on inside, right? And, and the interesting thing was that this girl said to me, what is it like at church? She's never been to church. We were talking about church. What is it like at church? Is, it, is there real community at church? And everything within me wanted to say, yeah, it's the thing you've been looking for your whole life. And to a degree, I think that's true. It is what she's looking for. But I had to say to her, you know what? We're not very good at this either. Actually, long before Instagram was making people facades, the church was doing it, right? We've gotten really good at this for a long time. Church people have mastered the art of coming to church, putting on their church smile, and then going home and crying and, and contemplating suicide, right? And never the two shall meet. I had to go to the doctor last week because I had a chest infection, so I went to the GP, and we chatted for way longer than I should have been in his, uh, in his, in his what is it called? Consulting room. For way longer than that because he just wanted to let me know, listen, I'm having people come in all the time who should be coming to you. That's what he said. But these people don't need medical attention. They need someone to talk to. They need the church. It was his, was his own admission. Not, not a churchgoer, but he said, we have lost. He said, we've lost our soul since we stopped going to church. And I think that's true, and I think that's what this young girl needs, and I think it's what his patients need, but we need to get better, therefore, at being able to offer people genuine community rather than a facade of happy, cheesy Christian Instagram. And I think the reason we struggle so much with doing conflict well and forgiveness well and peacemaking well is because we have to maintain this facade and by its very nature to pursue conflict and reconciliation and forgiveness and peacemaking, we have to deconstruct the facade. We have to admit that not everything is perfectly rosy, right? So it's kind of a choice. If we want to have happy, healthy, vibrant community, then we have to get rid of that facade. We just have to tear it down. It has to go. You can't have both. And what I think Jesus is going to call us to this morning is that very thing. Real, honest, transparent community that values reconciliation over facade. So 
So why are we so bad at doing this? Why are we so bad at pursuing people who we have wronged or being pursued by people who we have wronged? Why are we so bad at this? Partly it's the facade thing. I think another reason is we just, as Christians, we value unity, right? This is a good thing. We value unity. We value peace. We value uh, love. And so for some of us, we have grown up believing that to pursue reconciliation through conflict is to get rid of unity or to compromise peace, where actually the reverse is true. But that's where we're coming from. We don't want to rock the boat. We like it when everything is sailing smoothly. So that's another reason. The other reason is I think we just don't know how to do it. If we're honest, if, if we come into a situation where someone has wronged us, we feel hurt, we feel betrayed, we feel sinned against, we just don't know what the next step ought to be. And so that's what this series is about. This is about equipping us to live gospel-centered lives because we believe that the gospel informs all of life and that all of life should be all about Jesus. So let's get into it. Here's what I think happens. When, when you've been sinned against, and just put yourself, right, throughout this message, think of your own experience. Put yourself in this place. If you've been sinned against, if someone has hurt you, if you've been wronged, there, there can be a couple of ways that we tend to go. One way is avoidance. I think this is probably the majority of people in our church this morning. It's avoidance. So yes, we've been wronged. Yes, we feel hurt. Yes, there ought to be reconciliation and recompense and forgiveness. But that's hard work. And that can be awkward. And so what we tend to do is just avoid. And, and there's sort of two faces of avoidance, okay? So number one is, is, is denial. Sometimes the quickest way just to get over feeling hurt is just to deny that there was hurt in the first place. You see this a lot, with, especially with women who are living with abusive husbands. I've been in a situation before at a former church where I could see that there was some abuse in a relationship. I confronted the man, the husband, about this. He's a believer, loves Jesus, confronted him about the way that he was speaking to his wife. He denied it, so I went to her and spoke with his wife about it, and she denied it. And sometimes this is just a survival mechanism, right? It's too big to deal with. I'm just going to deny that it's there so that we can just survive. So it's denial, but it's also withdrawal. Sometimes we deny that it's going on. Sometimes we know that it's going on. We acknowledge that it's going on, but we're not going to do anything about it, so we withdraw. We withdraw from the relationship. And sometimes, as the one who has sinned against someone, you don't even know that this is going on. Suddenly, they're not replying to your texts anymore. Suddenly, they're cancelling the dinner dates all of a sudden, and you don't even know. But this is their way of dealing with the hurt that you have caused them. It's just to withdraw. It's a passive response that actually doesn't do anything to resolve the situation. So there's avoidance. Then for some people, there's aggression. I'd say most of us are on the avoidance thing. Some people are on the aggression side of things. They kind of enjoy jumping into the conflict, but they don't do it in a helpful way or a loving way. They do it in an aggressive way. This is where you get 
spurt. This happens all the time on social media, like a billion times a second, right? Keyboard warriors, I, I, I wish you'd go to hell, you're worse than Hitler. Ugh. But it happens also in interpersonal relationships. Some people are just aggressive people who need to deal with their aggression before they address the issue at hand. The worst kind of aggression, though, is passive aggression. Can I get an amen? The worst thing, right? As soon as Adam and Eve bit into that fruit, I think passive aggression came first, right? That's, you can even see it in the account now that I think about it, right? God comes to Adam. Adam says, the woman that you put here with me, she made me eat it, right? That's passive aggression. It's terrible. Ruins community and stifles real reconciliation. So I think they're the natural paths that we take. And this is why we need this sermon, because there is a third way that isn't avoidance, isn't aggression, it's gospel-centered reconciliation. And the Bible is actually really helpful here. It has a lot to tell us about how to go about this. And in fact, there's so much that the Bible gives us in this that I just have to limit it for the sake of time. I know you, if you're here this morning, you've got kids and we don't have our kids program, you're hoping that I finish really soon. So I'm trying to, I'm doing you a favor, right? So I gave you the handout so I don't have to go through all of it. All right, I'm going to limit it to Matthew's gospel and I'm going to talk a little, just a little bit about what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel about this issue of reconciliation, peacemaking, forgiveness, and so on. You ready? Here we go. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 23 to 24. He says, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is what this means. We have to do a bit of translation because he's he's talking to a Jewish audience That's why there's altars. We don't have an altar. This is not an altar. There's a table of remembrance, right? But in his context, we can translate that into our own. And the point is this. Our personal relationships are not separate from our personal worship. That's what he's saying. He's saying the way that you relate to people is intimately interwoven with your worship. You can't live in an abusive relationship and then come to church and praise the Lord on Sunday morning. Jesus says, no. He would rather you don't come and first deal with what's going on at home. Jesus doesn't want your worship, your singing, your participation where there is brokenness in your relationships. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and worship, Jesus says. So that's Matthew 5, all right? Matthew 7, 3 to 5. This is, this is Jesus the comedian, all right? It's all right to laugh at what some of the things that Jesus say are meant to be funny, all right? This is, this is an example. He's, he's Jewish. He's a comedian, all right? It's in the blood. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. One of the fundamental principles that Jesus gives us for reconciliation with one another, even when you've been sinned against, is first to examine yourself. First, he says this a lot in these passages, first examine yourself. He doesn't say there is no speck. He just says deal with the log first, right? He's not denying that there's an issue. He's just saying deal with your own stuff first. Honest Humble self-examination always precedes reconciliation and conflict management. Now, here's the reality, right? Because we can, I'm going to give you the ideal. The reality is that we always fall short of what Jesus sets out for us. That's part of the reason why it's great to sing, I'm a child of God by grace and grace alone. Because if it was dependent on how well I measure up to this, I'm finished. Right? So it's grace, grace alone. But as we pursue this kind of reconciliation, forgiveness, and peacemaking, Jesus says, first we must examine our own hearts. And here's the truth. Because this is a gospel-centered path, any self-righteousness kills it. When you're trying to live a gospel-centered life, any hint of self-righteousness will knock you off that path. If you want to Follow Jesus in the path that he set for reconciliation and peacemaking and forgiveness. Self-righteousness has to die. Self-righteousness is the kind of thing that says, I've been sinned against and they must pay. And I will be the judge, jury and executioner. I've got him. Right? This happens in marriage, marriage relationships all the time. Right? I finally got him. Yes. Evidence. I have lines of evidence, Your Honour. Little camera caught him not putting the toilet seat down again. Self righteousness kills, not only in the condemnation of the perpetrator, but also in the response of the perpetrator. Well, hang on a second, you do bad stuff as well. You did that thing last week. Right? That's, that's self-righteousness. That is fueled by a sense that I have to justify myself. The beauty of the gospel is I don't need to justify myself anymore because Jesus has made me just. I don't have to defend. I don't have to keep a perfect record. So self-examination and free, free from self-righteousness. That's Matthew 7. Matthew 18. This is the one we're going to talk about for the rest of our time. Okay, so let me just pick out a couple of verses first. 
So in verse 18 to 20, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Here's the point. Jesus is saying that wherever we are pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness and peacemaking and conflict, God is intimately involved in that work. That's the point. To the point where he says, whatever you decide when you're pursuing this, according to biblical principles, whatever you decide in the process of conflict management, God agrees. God is in it. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you decide on earth shall be decided likewise in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. God is intimately involved in this process. Now let me just say real quick, because this is one of, in the top ten misunderstood passages, this is number three, all right? When he says in verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, he's not talking about a slow night at your small group, okay? We love to pull that one out when when only two people have turned up at small group. We're like, well, Jesus says where two or three are gathered, he's there among us, so we're okay. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about your little prayer group. He's not talking about any of that stuff. He's talking about conflict management, conflict resolution. He's talking about church discipline. Okay? Here's the truth. If two people show up at your small group, God is there with you. If 20 people show up, God is there with you. If you have 100 people on site, like, the number doesn't determine whether God is with us. Jesus is always with us by his spirit. Okay? He's speaking specifically here, and the two or three are the witnesses that he's mentioned a couple of verses ago. This is why context is so important. He says, if you're going to pursue conflict... And reconciliation and church discipline, you need two or three witnesses. And then he says, where those two or three are gathered, in my name, there I am with you. Jesus is putting his stamp of approval on church discipline and conflict management. And the point is, whenever we do this, whenever we get over ourselves long enough, wherever we get past the awkwardness long enough to actually pursue what he's calling us and commanding us to do, he says, I'm with you in that. You're not doing it alone. A lot of blank stares this morning, all right? It's, I understand, it's that time of year. Okay, here, how about this? Let's go to the pathway that Jesus sets for us, all right? If you've got a little one of these uh, handouts, on the right side, I've written there, Jesus' pathway to reconciliation. He gives us four really simple, practical, helpful steps to follow if we have grievances against one another. So we're going to work through this, and then we're going to be done, all right? Jesus' pathway to reconciliation. Step number one is private confrontation. Private confrontation. Matthew 18 and verse 15. He says... To the people of Red Door Church in Caroline Springs, if your brother or sister sins against you, 
Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Friends, brothers, sisters, everyone look right at me. How much hurt and rigmarole and how much of my time could be saved if we just took the first step. I can't tell you how many times I've been called in to mediate in a situation where what's happening is happening for the first time and I'm there. That's not a good place to be. Or how much more often does this happen? 25 people at church know about this and I don't and I'm the one who sinned against someone. It's a much smoother, wider, and easier path to take to gossip about someone who's hurt you than to confront someone who's hurt you. And Jesus says, enough. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I can't tell you how much, I mean, I've been moved to tears on a number of occasions where someone has come to me angry with me because I've hurt them in some way. Moved to tears because it is so good to have it come that way rather than through the back door via 25 other people. The worst thing that ever happens to me in my professional life is when someone comes to me and says, a lot of people are saying, whatever follows next is bad news. Our first duty is to lovingly confront in private the person who has sinned. This minimizes their embarrassment and the potential for gossip. The goal is to win them to repentance and reconciliation. Some of you here this morning have been called in to my office, right, for this kind of one-to-one private confrontation, and it's always awkward and it's always beautiful. Because every time that that has happened, it has ended with reconciliation and hugs. Step number two, two or three witnesses. He's going to work through the escalation process, all right? Two or three witnesses. That's Matthew 18, verse 16, just the next verse. If he does not listen, the one that you've confronted privately, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is a law going back to Leviticus that uh, God put in place just to to, um, guard against one person condemning another with no basis, right? There needs to be two or three witnesses. And this is just an opportunity for you not to gather your team, right? We're here to tell you you're wrong, you know, me and the rest of the church, right? It's not like that, it's just to establish that this is not just something that I've noticed. This is not just a personal grievance because I don't like you, right? This is something that we, as brothers and sisters of you, who love you, have noticed and need to bring to your attention. At the first step, you rejected repentance. Now, we're asking you again, please turn away from this harmful and hurtful behavior. 
If there is no confession and repentance on behalf of the one being confronted, the next step is to introduce one or two other believers who have witnessed the sinful behavior. This step shows the person that their wrongdoing is not a matter of mere personal opinion. All right. Step number three, church intervention. Step three is church intervention. All right. The first half of the next verse, Matthew 18 and verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. So you can see the escalation and the, and the enlargement of the people who are involved in this process. Now it becomes a church matter. So if there's still no confession and repentance on behalf of the one being confronted, the next step is to raise the matter with the church. This is often best done in the context of a small group where all of the members are well acquainted with the person in question. That's the best way for this to happen. And it's also a reason why it's really important for us all to be in small groups. Because in the context of the early church, we have a lot of house churches, this works, right? There's 12 other people, we all know each other well, we can all see the sin in each other's lives, we're in each other's lives, and so this kind of thing becomes much easier. If we were just to pull someone out the front and say they did a bad thing, most of you don't know him, you don't know the situation, it's just a little bit embarrassing for him and not very helpful for all of us. There may be opportunities and instances where we need to make a public declaration particularly if there is a threat to the safety of people in the church. But otherwise, this is something that should happen in the context of small groups. Final step, number four, is the most drastic step. And that is removal from fellowship. If the person in question continues to resist the appeals of his church family, he is to be removed from fellowship. He is thus treated as an unbeliever because that is the position he has taken through unrepentance. If you continually refuse to repent, you just reveal to everyone that you're not a Christian. So Jesus says, treat him that way as an unbeliever. This step is never taken without much prayer and pleading for change. Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A couple of things on this. First of all, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He loved them. He ate with them. He was the only one who had any interest in them. Everyone else rejected them. He actually pursued them. So yes, we're saying you can no longer be part of this fellowship of believers because you're showing yourself not to be a believer, but we love you and we want you to come back. We're going to pursue you. Second thing is, this was written in the context where you had one church in each city, pretty much. And so if you're removed from the fellowship of the church, you couldn't just go down the road to in-church Melbourne, right? And so it was more significant to be excluded from the church community. That's not the case here. And I'm just telling you, in the last six years, people have, rather than facing their, uh, the reconciliation process, have just gone to other churches. That's out of our hands. But Jesus gives us this process 
in order not to exclude people, but to woo them back. So they're the four steps that Jesus gives us. His pathway to reconciliation. And within that, there's going to be a lot of grey, there's going to be a lot of nuance, there's going to be a lot of praying and pleading and meeting and talking. But if we do it Jesus' way, there isn't going to be any gossip. There isn't going to be any condemnation. We are going to speak the truth in love in order to produce peace and reconciliation. Here's the point. If we are gospel-centered people, that means we constantly have in the forefront of our minds the fact that while we were God's enemies, he sent his son to die for us. While we were deserving of condemnation, he died in our place and for our sin. If we have that at the forefront of our minds, it is impossible to condemn anybody. It is impossible to withhold forgiveness from anybody. That's why Jesus says when he gives us that prayer, he says, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. They go together. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me while I withhold forgiveness from somebody else. And I know that there is a spectrum here. And sometimes they're little tiny things that we just need to get over. And sometimes they're deep, dark hurts that take generations to overcome. But that guiding principle holds true. If we know how much God has forgiven us, how then can we withhold forgiveness from others? God has made us agents of reconciliation. And so my prayer for our church is that we would start doing this. I think the healthiest church is the one where conflict is constantly coming to the surface. It's not a church without conflict. That's the fake facade church. It's a church where conflict is constantly coming to the surface, being addressed and forgiven and put to death. That's all i got. I wanted to have a few minutes for some Q&A. We don't have time. Uh, I'll just pray for us. And uh, if you want to chat more about it, we've got lunch afterwards, feel free. I'd love to chat with you further. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for addressing this issue in Matthew chapter 18. We need your help with this. We're so prone to avoidance and to aggression and so prone to wander from your way. Holy Spirit, please make us a gospel-centered church. Please help us to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation and peace. For Jesus' sake, amen.